0: Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 138. Lions fans, so you wanted to be in big games. You dreamed of one day winning divisions and winning playoff games and getting to NFC Championship games. This is the other side of that coin that Packer fans know all too well. Live by the Dan Gamble, die by the Dan Gamble. What a collapse for the Lions in the NFC Championship game. Just a brutal, brutal beat. At least they covered any solace there because it looked like they weren't going to cover. It looked like they were going to be up by 17 with 20 minutes left and not cover plus seven and a half. They actually got that done, which was nice. We'll talk about championship weekend. Not only the Lions collapsed, but the Ravens playing one of the dumbest games of football on the biggest stage I think I've seen in quite some time against Patrick Mahomes and Taylor Swift and the Chiefs. Now the NFL gets their dream. Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl in Vegas in a couple of weeks. We'll break down championship weekend. Bucks got a win on Saturday. RIP Prunt Dog, 2-1 and one in the interim. Doc Rivers takes the reins tonight against the defending world champion Nuggets on the road. This stretch of schedule for the Bucks is brutal. Basically from now until the end of the year. They had the second easiest schedule up until this point. Now it cranks up in a big, big way as Doc Rivers takes over on the road tonight, beginning of a five-game West Coast swing. We'll hit on a little college hoops at the end of the podcast as well. Badgers top 10 today, maybe? Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The board. Yes! yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10! A smash up the middle face hit to center here comes Gomez around third a throw and the Brewers win here's the snap he looks he throws it and there is your Super Bowl dagger Booker the drive gets inside please in backed away it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul and a pentacle ball throws it down swinging fly dan campbell right here in the nfc championship game having numerous chances to do the right thing and gambling on the wrong Um, thing you've got 20 hit me peter don't hit me 21 hit me peter hit me that's 30 hit me (laughs) that's about the way it went for Campbell. and i love dan campbell like we said basically all year and especially in the friday podcast leading into championship weekend He's a guy you root for. How can you not? The kneecap speech, all the stuff he had to say on hard knocks, and he just kind of felt like a meathead, but then he got the team turned around midway through last year. They keep the Packers out of the playoffs in the Aaron Rodgers finale in Green Bay. Then they have a fantastic year this year, 12-win season. They finally win the NFC North for the first time, their first division title in 30 years. They get home playoff games. They win two of those. They're knocking on the door of the Super Bowl. What's not to like about a franchise and a fan base that have been through what Lions fans have been through? Finally getting a good team and a good scheme and a head coach that everybody can rally behind. and Everybody seems to like and to have it end that way on Sunday. That's just kind of the X factor of Dan Campbell. I guess he did all of the stuff we saw on Sunday And he did it all year long and last year, too, and that's how they got there. I think that's what Lions fans are saying to themselves in the mirror this morning, that that's what happens. It didn't work out this time, but a part of what we saw on Sunday from Dan Campbell, that willing to go for it on fourth and short in the big moments instead of taking three, going for a touchdown, trying to seize control of the game. Those are all big reasons why the Lions won 12 games, why they won a couple of playoff games, and why they were knocking on the door of being in the Super Bowl for the first time ever. Unfortunately, in those big moments on Sunday, a lot of the things that they hit on during the regular season did not break in their favor, and that leads to a ton of second guessing, and how could it not? Here's what Dan Campbell said before we break the whole thing down. Here's what Campbell had to say about the two decisions to not kick field goals, one that would have made it 27-10, to 10, another that would have tied the game. I don't know if he hits on the final drive and the time management and the timeouts here. He said basically no regret. I just felt really good about us converting. Oh, and, oh uh, there we go. Getting our momentum and, and not letting them play long ball. Um, you know, they were bleeding the clock out. That's what they do. Um, And I wanted to get the upper hand back, Um, you know, and it's easy hindsight, and I get it, you know. Um, I get that. But I don't regret those decisions, and that's hard, you know, it's hard because, you know, they didn't, we didn't come through. It wasn't able to to work out, but I just, I don't, I don't. And I understand the scrutiny I'll get. That's part of the gig, man. Um, But, You know, we just just didn't work out. Even in that moment when you know he made some of the wrong decisions, I find myself liking him. I do want to say this. Okay, first of all, 24-7 halftime lead. They went out and they smacked the Niners in the mouth. They made all the plays. They go right down the field in the opening drive up 7-0, up 14-0. At the 14-0 point, or at least at the 21-7 point, I'm thinking, my God, are the Lions going to be in the Super Bowl? They're actually going to be in the Super Bowl. And then they make the decision. What makes the field goal decisions in the second half peculiar to me is the decision that he made at the end of the half. Now, I get that at the end of the half, when they're knocking on the door of the end zone, and if they score there, it's over, right? I mean, I the, the Niners aren't coming back down from 28-7. They had a chance to go for the knockout punch there, and they couldn't get in the end zone. It ends up being fourth and goal at the two-yard line. Initially, they leave the offense out there, and with the way Dan Campbell has operated all year, you're thinking, oh my God, they're really going to go for it. The ball's on this guy. He's actually going to go for this. Then, after 10 seconds of thinking it over, he gives the field goal symbol, and they bring out their kicker, and they kick a chip shot field goal to take a three-score lead. In that instance, it made total sense. Let's get a three-score lead. This is the NFC Championship game. You have a chance to be up 24-7. There's no guarantee you're getting into the end zone. It's fourth and goal. To me, that was the right decision. But that decision was not Dan Campbell-like. That was not in unison with what we had seen from Dan Campbell all year. In that moment, and again, I understand that's a 22-yard field goal, and I don't even know what the attempts would have been in the second half. The first attempt when they went for on fourth down probably would have been in the 43-44 to range. I think the potential game tying field goal would have been the 48-yard range. That is a difference. There's a difference there between a chip shot and field goals that are in that 40 to 49 or 45 to 49-yard range. Probably made the decision to kick the field goal there a little easier. That decision, though, signaled to me as uh, as an objective fan that he recognized this isn't just any game. This isn't that Dallas game that we saw at the end of the year where, remember, they went for two. There was the whole miscue then with who checked into the game. Then they picked up a penalty, but then they kept on going for two. That was the first time we really saw as a national audience. Boy, Dan Campbell, He'll risk it all in a heartbeat, and if he's set on a decision, he'll keep doing it. Because after the debacle that was that two-point conversion in Dallas and after the penalty that put him back to the 10-yard line, he could have easily kicked a field goal, gone to overtime, and won that game in overtime. He made the decision to go for two in that instance, and after all that happened, he still decided to go for it even as they got backed up to her, It was almost a 10-yard attempt. So in this moment, before the end of the half, he signals with his decision, hey, I recognize the stakes are a little higher here. We are knocking on the door of the Super Bowl. We have basically played a perfect first half, and they did. That was basically a perfect half of football in that instance, on that level, on the road against the number one team in the NFC. That decision, though, to kick a field goal there meant to me, okay, Dan Campbell is known for being a guy who will go for it on fourth down. He'll go for your throat. If he can finish the game early, he'll finish the game early. That decision to me meant he recognizes the stage they're on, how big this is, and how big it is to have a three-score lead. They take the 24-7 halftime lead. It's still 24-7 with whatever was left on the clock in the third quarter when they decide to go for it on that first fourth down in the second half. You're up 24-7 with eight or nine minutes. I think the win probability tracker had them up to something like 92% chance to win the game in that moment. And in the moment, I didn't hate that decision either, if I'm honest. That was very much in line with who he had been all year. And if you pick that up, and they should have picked it up, if you pick that up and you can move in for a touchdown, it's 31-10, that game is over too. That's the two sides of the coin that he was looking at in that moment of we could kick a field goal and do exactly what we did at the end of the first half. There's no guarantee, though, because it's a much longer field goal. Or we can try to do what we've done all year, and that is try to stomp on somebody when we sense there's blood in the water, when this game could be over. He went for it. The pass from Goff was not perfect. It should have been caught. It hit the receiver in both hands, even though, again, it was maybe a little behind him, had to reach for it. In the NFC Championship game, if it hits you in the hands, that's one that you've got to reel in, and that would have been a first down. In that moment, I had no problem because they didn't get it. Okay, you're still up two touchdowns, 24 to 10. The play after that, or two plays after that, when Purdy threw deep, and that Lions safety should have had an interception. It bounces off of his helmet, and Ayuk is able to catch it inside the five. That was the first moment where I thought, oh boy, Lions are in trouble. You don't get the fourth down when that's something you've been doing all year, and then two plays later, that happens, and you've breathed life back into this one seed they get into the end zone 24-17. Subsequent drive, an immediate fumble by Gibbs, recovered by the Niners, inside Detroit's 20. Four plays later, they're in again, and in a blink, it's 24-24. That play to Iuke though... That's where you started to feel the vibes change. And being a Packer fan, we've been down this road before in big games where you can sense the momentum is changing and all of a sudden things start to snowball on you. There's always a moment. I don't think the moment was necessarily not converting that fourth down. The moment was the IU catch. Then you have the fumble, then another touchdown, and suddenly a 17-point lead evaporated in the span of six minutes. Now, you're down three. Late in the game, and again, you have a chance to kick a 45, 46-yard field goal to maybe tie the game. They decide to go for it again, and again, they don't convert. It is worth noting at this point, somebody put this on Twitter, inside of the 30-yard inside of the 30 yard attempt range, the Lions were 27 of 28 on field goals this year. Inside of 30 yards, 96%. Between 30 and 39, they were 29 of 30, 96%. But 40 to 49, they were 74%. And 50-plus, which would not have been a kick they were attempting in either of those two instances in the second half. But 50-plus, they were 5 of 13, 38%. I know it's convenient to look back at how things went and say you left six points on the board. Lions fans that I've seen on Twitter that are that have followings, that are podcasters or bloggers, sort of like what we do here for the Packers, they are arguing, yes, maybe we should have kicked the field goals in both of those situations. However, it's worth noting our kicking game has not been good And it's not a guarantee that we had six points. That's the argument from just a casual NFL fan that was watching that game. How could you leave six points on the field? Lions fans are saying, look, our kicking game has not been good all year. To say we were guaranteed to have six points in those situations is maybe a farce. I think most Lions fans seem to be arguing, okay, if we get one of those, obviously, if you know you're going to get one, you still do it. But to say we left six points on the board like they were a guarantee, Lions fans and Lions bloggers and podcasters, that might not necessarily be true, given what the percentages were in the range they would have been kicking those two field goals in. As an NFL fan and somebody who just watches all these games anyway, I don't think I had a problem, like I said at all, with the first decision. I had more of a problem once you had lost all momentum and you were now down I had more of a problem with the second decision to not kick a field goal and to go for it. But even that one, I don't think that I was crazy about, again, even though they didn't convert. The thing that I would be upset about if I were a Lions fan in that world, the thing that I would be most upset about is not the two decisions to go for it on fourth down when you could have kicked a field goal. It was the final drive where they were down 10 and they were moving the ball, had three timeouts. You had the two-minute warning. They were kind of methodically moving the ball down the field. There was an urgency there. And then you get it down to third down and goal at the two-yard line of San Francisco, or the one-yard line of San Francisco. You're still down 10. You've got about a minute and 10 seconds left. But you have all three timeouts. You're in a position where if we score and we kick the ball away, we don't have to attempt the onside kick. We still have three timeouts. If our defense can somehow come up with a stop, we should get the ball back with about 45-ish seconds. It's not a great situation, but at least you have a puncher's chance. The decision to to run the ball on third and goal blew my mind. Because <laughs> if you don't get in, you have to spend one of your timeouts. And once you spend one of your timeouts, you render the other two meaningless because you have to recover the onside kick at that point. I think only two onside kicks have been recovered all year. The NFL has really relegated the onside kick out of the game 10 years too late. But they have really gotten it out of the game where it's just hard to convert them. When you decide to run there, and I get it, the Lions bread and butter was running and they were dominating on the ground most of the day. And in your mind, in Dan Campbell's mind, they're thinking just shove this in from a yard out. We should be able to get a yard. And then we score the touchdown. We still have our three timeouts. But you've got to weigh the risk-reward there of if we get stopped, we burn a timeout, and we're in a terrible situation where we have to recover an onside kick, which has the probability of about 1%. They decide to run it. Montgomery doesn't get in. They have to burn a timeout, and then they go for it on fourth and goal, which I also didn't understand. You could have passed it on third and goal, saved your three timeouts, and even if you don't get in the end zone, just kick the field goal You only need, you need 10 points. It doesn't matter what order you get them in. Certainly when you're knocking on the door and you're a yard away and the touchdown is the more difficult of the two to get, you'd love to get in. But you need a field goal and touchdown. It doesn't matter what order they happen in. This is all Madden thinking. I swear to you, we watch these games all year and it happens with the Packers too. I think every NFL head coach before they become a head coach should have to spend five seasons guiding a franchise, playing it on Madden. I don't think that playing a Madden video game gives me, as a plebeian, any insight into play calling quick slants, quick slants every time. Quick slant, quick slant, quick slant, quick slant. I don't think that that gives me the wherewithal to call a game as an NFL head coach, to call defensive plays, to call offensive plays. What I do think playing Madden gives you is a pretty adept knowledge of clock management and when to use timeouts and how those scenarios break. And in that situation... You know you need 10 points. It doesn't matter how you get them. In my mind, if I were playing that game on Madden, the second I got into field goal range and I didn't get in the end zone on first or second down, I would have almost kicked the field goal on third down just to save 10 more seconds. And then you have a chance to get a stop and try to get in the end zone. Maybe you throw a Hail Mary. But I just think a lot of NFL head coaches probably don't spend a lot of time playing Madden. And I do believe that the video game perspective is, lends itself to learning clock management and learning how to do two-minute drills and use your timeouts properly and give yourself the best chance to win. I couldn't understand a lot of what was going on. They go for it on fourth and goal. Luckily, they get it, so you do get the cover at plus 7.5. Then you have to go onside kick. It was maybe in the air for a little bit. It was a pretty good kick, honestly, but it didn't go 10 yards before somebody on Detroit touched it. San Francisco recovered anyway. And then the penalty was called on touching it, illegal touching, before it had gone 10 yards, and it ends up being the Niners getting a win. Of all the things that went wrong for the Lions and Dan Campbell in that second half, a lot of people are going to point to those field goals, and I get it. My biggest issue is with how they operated on that final drive. I did not understand a lot of the decisions made on that final drive. And you put yourself in a spot where at least if you save your timeouts and you kick the field goal, yeah, maybe you're looking at if you get get the stop and there's no guarantee of that. If you get the stop, maybe you get 30, 35, 40 seconds left, and you could end up in a situation where you're just chucking a Hail Mary. But I think you take the Hail Mary from the 50-yard line over trying to recover an onside kick. The percentage of conversion there, I would think, is a lot better to have something random happen on a Hail Mary where you get a deflection you catch it in the end zone as opposed to trying to recover an onside kick. That was the most baffling of all of the decisions made in the second half. But yeah, Lions fans, I was chatting with my buddies Lions fans, I'm sure, for many, many years have looked with wandering eyes at the Packer fan base and saying, man, that must be great. Every year they have a Hall of Fame quarterback. Every year they know they're going to win 10-plus games. Every year they're in the competition or they're in the running to win the division, they win it a lot. Every year they're getting playoff games and home playoff games and getting to the NFC Championship game, and this is all great. God, I wish we could get to that. Well, (laughs) there's also this. This is the other part of it, where when you're playing in those games – tragic things can happen that set you back mentally for the next two months of the calendar year. This was the 2014 NFC Championship game. I know it didn't happen all in the fourth quarter, but from the moment of that missed fourth down conversion to the Brandon IU tipped catch to that touchdown, to the fumble, to the another touchdown, to the other fourth down decision, to the way the last drive was handled, that was the 2014 NFC Championship game. It started a little bit earlier. It started in the third quarter as opposed to the fourth quarter, But everything just went wrong. And it should be noted, too, even though Dan Campbell, who admitted in that audio clip, look, I'm going to be the one that gets the scrutiny. I am going to get second guess for the way we handled the second half of that game. And certainly with the field goal decisions, it should also be noted the Lions forgot how to play football. I mean, they just got overwhelmed for about a quarter and a half. It was not until that final drive when they started to move the ball again that they started to look like the Lions. They had so many chances in the interim to catch a pass over the middle. I thought there had to be four or five drops in the interim of that missing that first fourth down decision. They had the ball on three separate possessions after that, and that included the fumble. That's another thing that you can't really count on that would have taken all of the second guessing of Dan Campbell out. If, if Gibbs just hangs on to a football and they drive down the field and get a touchdown or a field goal on that drive, the whole thing would be rendered meaningless. They just Platt, forgot how to play football for a while. They couldn't catch the ball. They were turning the ball over. All of the things that were working for them in the first half up until that point midway through the third quarter, they couldn't seem to get back to. That's an element, too. Yes, Dan Campbell is going to get second guess for all of the different decisions that he made in the second half. But let's not forget the Lions just lost their mind there for about 10 game minutes, and it wasn't until that final drive that we finally started to see their offense move the ball again. Just heartbreak. that, And that was how we felt after the 2014 NFC Championship game where you're just staring catatonically at a screen, wondering how did this happen? How is this happening? And you can't do anything to stop it. And you're watching it unfold in real time. It was like that Packers-Seahawks game. Well, God, somebody just knocked down the two-point conversion or somebody recover an onside kick. Brandon Boss to get off the field. I mean, there, one thing changes in the 2014 game. And if one thing goes right for them in this game yesterday, the Lions are in the Super Bowl for the first time ever. That's the kind of game you find yourself in sometimes when your team is winning and you're playing in the big games on the big stages. Just a crazy finish. By the way, Brock Purdy, I don't know. I don't know what to make of him. He looks so bad in certain moments in games and then all of a sudden like in the second half yesterday, he was connecting on every pass. He was evading every potential sack. He was scrambling like Lamar Jackson. That guy is talented, but he has a little angels in the outfield luck on his side. There were so many passes against the Packers that should have been picked off and weren't. There were passes that should have been picked off in this game that end up in the hands of his receiver somehow. It just feels like every little bit of luck seems to go Purdy's way. There were three times in that second half where it looked like they had him dead to rights. He Houdini's his way out of that and then not only gets out of it and doesn't get sacked, he ends up picking up 20 yards down the field. I can't make heads or tails of whether or not he's good. His numbers are obviously good. Now, having watched all of the Packer game, obviously, and all of the game yesterday, how does this guy keep getting away with this? He just, every bad pass that should be intercepted isn't, and every time he should get sacked, he's able to pop out of there, ta-da, and ends up making a big play down the field. I don't quite get it. I guess you've got to be good and lucky, and he's maybe a good portion of both. Niners end up getting the win 34-31. They're on their way to the Super Bowl. The other game yesterday, the AFC Championship game, the first game, this was just a case of Seinfeld shrinking in the moment if you're the Baltimore Ravens. Do women know about shrinkage? What do you mean, like laundry? (laughs) No. They shriveled. I mean, it just shriveled up. I had a teaser going where I had the Ravens plus two and a half and the over on that game. All indications all year were that this was the year for the Ravens, and I know I shouldn't have walked into that mousetrap because we've seen this play out before. We've seen it play out in the Lamar Jackson era where they're the best team in the AFC all year long, and they've got all roads going to the Super Bowl through Baltimore, and they don't even make the AFC championship game, or in this instance they do, and just don't play anywhere near to the level they played during the course of the year. All of the mistakes You had Lamar throwing into triple coverage. When they got down, they seemed to just freak out, and I get it. They haven't been down a lot this year, and when you're down at home and the pressure's on in that moment and Patrick Mahomes is on the other side, that ratchets things up a notch too. They had to play one of the stupidest games of football. So many unsportsmanlike conduct penalties and late hits and helmet to helmet. Zay Flowers fumbling in the end zone basically at the half-yard line when it looked like they were going in to make it a 17-14 game. And two plays before that, him getting a taunting penalty when he had it inside their the Chiefs' 10-yard line, backs it up to the 25. Lamar throwing into triple coverage. All of the penalties and the turnovers and the happy feet for Jackson. That team's bread and butter all year long was running the ball, and they had healthy running backs, and the Chiefs were not a good run defense. Now, there were instances yesterday where they ran the ball and the Chiefs stuffed it, but stick with it. Stick with the running game. From about the midpoint second quarter on, it felt like every drop back for Lamar, they were just looking to get the ball downfield on a big chunk play. It kind of reminded me of Aaron Rodgers in 2021 and 2022. Just take what's there. I can't tell you having money on the Ravens how many times I screamed. Just take what's there. You've got a running back open in the flat. You've got a tight end open four yards downfield. It felt like every single play was a Madden. Speaking of Madden, was a Madden all streaks, and all Lamar could do was hop his feet in the pocket, waiting for somebody to get open 40 or 50 yards downfield. Just take what's given to you. You can't score 10 points on one pass. They just seemed to freak out and played a stupid game on a major stage, and you can't do that in any game like that, especially against a guy like Patrick Mahomes. That was like watching the Patriots. That was like watching Tom Brady and Gronk and Prime Brady and Prime Gronk and Prime Belichick. That was like watching those Patriots teams in 2014, 2015, 2016. They got what they needed when they needed it. They got a big sack when they needed it. Travis Kelsey had a huge day. He was up and down all year, way up with 11 catches on Sunday, kind of saved his best game for the biggest stage. Mahomes was 11 for his first 11. That was like watching Brady go into some other team's place in an AFC championship game or a divisional round game. And the Patriots just doing what they wanted to, even though all year long we thought this is the year (laughs) that the Brady dynasty dies and somebody beats them and then they go on the road and win a big game. That's exactly what it looked like yesterday. It is amazing in the AFC where you had 20 years, really, of that Brady-Patriots dynasty, and then he finally moves on to Tampa, and then he retires, and if you're in the AFC, you're thinking, okay, things are going to open up now finally – and then Patrick Mahomes just takes the baton, and the Chiefs are now the new Patriots, where they're always in the AFC Championship game. This is, what, their fourth Super Bowl in the Mahomes era. They've won two. They lost one. Just incredible how AFC teams and fan bases had to feel like, finally, like the Rock, finally, Tom Brady has left the AFC, and then you just basically get a clone of him at quarterback, obviously more mobile, and a clone of that team that just makes the plays when they need to make them and come up with the big moments on the biggest stages. I'm taking the Chiefs. The bet is already in. I know some people are not looking forward to this game. I don't think I am either. Hey, remember the last time the Chiefs and the Niners played? That was February, early February of 2020. And then about two weeks after that game, the entire world and our country collapsed, and we were all trapped inside our homes for 10 months. Let's hope that doesn't happen again. The bet is already in on the Chiefs. I have the Chiefs at plus two and a half. I can't believe they're catching points. I'll probably put a money line bet on it too. They're plus 105 or plus 110. Like I learned yesterday when I bet on the Ravens, you don't make any money. And we said that about the Patriots all the time. Uh, Not on this podcast because it wasn't a podcast. But I said on the air, you don't make any money betting against Tom Brady in January or February in this case. And the same kind of applies for Mahomes. If I lose this bet, I lose. But I'm not betting against him anymore. On these, In these moments, in the big games, especially in title games or Super Bowls, you just don't make any money betting against Patrick Mahomes and this Chiefs team. And now Taylor Swift, the NFL's dream. <laughs> Did you see Taylor and Kelsey at the end of that game? Man, the outrage on Twitter and Facebook. I said last week, in my mind at this point, the only thing more annoying than the cuts to Taylor are the people that need to tell you how annoyed they are about the cuts to Taylor, which makes no sense. Those two ideas do not line up. They're cutting to Taylor on the TV broadcast, thus I am mad at Taylor. That's like getting mad at the waiter because your food sucked at a restaurant. She has no control over that. You know who you should be mad at? Whatever executive producer is on CBS or the executive producer on Fox. In fact, at one point yesterday, they cut to Taylor in the box and she must have been watching the TV broadcast. And you can see her mouth the words, get the camera off me. So she is with you. For the people that hate seeing Taylor and are sick and tired of the cuts to the box, in that moment, she was right there with you. You, you shouldn't be mad at her. She should be able to go to a game, right, and do what she wants in this world. As long as you can pay to get in. You can do whatever you want. This is America. You should be mad at the executive producers on CBS or Fox. I don't even know what game or what network the Super Bowl is on. They're the ones deciding. They're the chefs. They're the reason the food is the way that it is. Get mad at them. It was quite a moment, though, for Kelsey and Taylor Swift at the end of that game. A little smoocharoo. Somebody, a bunch of different Taylor-obsessed Twitter accounts were trying to figure out if she said she loved him or if he said he loved her at the end of it. Whatever. Fine. Good for them. Good for them. You got the All-American pop star and the All-American football star. I don't know what's not to like about that. but People really don't like it. That sets up the Niners and Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Two weeks or, I guess, 13 days from now in Vegas. But, yeah, I'm already in. We're already in on the Chiefs at plus two and a half. I guess we can monitor the line. I do also love a teaser. If you tease them plus seven to plus nine and a half, and then I think the over would be down to 39 or 40, depending on the book. I also kind of like that, too, teasing the Chiefs line and the over on total points. But we're already in on the Chiefs at plus two and a half for the Super Bowl bet. Mark it down, and we'll put that on the official picks. I forget where we even are now, 51-36-5, and I think, or 51-37-5. and Well, that wraps up championship weekend, just a, a wild weekend, and the Baltimore fan base and the Detroit fan base is just having a tough morning this morning. All right, let's move on to the Bucks. Doc officially announced over the weekend, did his press conference. It was what you expected it to be from a guy who's been in the league for whatever we said, 24 years. And he's won 1,100 games and he's been to the finals twice and won a ring. It was professional. It was a bit different than the Adrian Griffin intro presser where there were times where Adrian Griffin with those wide eyes looked like, I'm the head coach. What are you asking me? I don't know. Next question. Next question. I do remember there being a bit of unease after the Adrian Griffin intro presser with the way that he handled some of those questions and with the way that he handled his time with the media. Doc was a pro's pro. He was personable. He talked about the plan. He did say he didn't wish this situation on anyone. I didn't love hearing that. I'll be honest. But I understand what he's saying. You're joining a championship caliber team that has championship expectations in the middle of the year, and now you've got to implement your system on the go. Or you have to tailor your system to what they've been learning all year, find the correct tweaks to maybe what they've been doing. I get it. I mean, I understand what he's saying. But as a fan, you don't want to hear your new head coach sitting down and in the first five sentences saying, I don't wish having this job on anyone. Okay, let's go get them. Doc will start tonight. That ends the Joe Prunty era, RIP Prunt Dog. They played pretty well for him. Two and one record in three games, and their defensive rating in three games. I understand that's an extremely small sample size. Their defensive rating was 112, which would put them top three or top five in the league in the three game sample size. Prunty did tweak some stuff, he'd have to tell you the precise X's and O's and maybe what they were doing with Griffin that he didn't like, that he was able to change in that very short window. They looked much more connected. They looked better defensively. They lose to the Cavaliers Friday night, 112-100. to That was an offensive problem, though. Limiting a team in this day and age to 112 points should get you a win, especially when you have Giannis and Damon Middleton. Then they came out against Zion and a pretty good Pelicans team. Pelicans came in 26-19 and in the top six in the Western Conference. And they put it on him on Saturday, 141 to 117. We got some Thanosis minutes at the end of it. Giannis had 30 plus again. Dame finally had a good shooting day. Dame's shooting numbers in January, not great. He'll be fine. He's too good, and he's all time good to not be fine. If you look at his game log, though, if you're somebody who does that, if you're a weirdo who, after every Bucks game, looks at the box score, clicks on every individual player, and sees how the games are going game to game, if you're a loser like that, <laughs> if you're a real dork like like some podcaster I know, if you look at his numbers in December, they were very good: 46 percent shooting, 44 percent from beyond the arc. That's about where you'd expect Dame to be. Maybe not 46 or 44 percent from beyond the arc. That would be historically great, but close to 40, in the upper 30s, low 40s. In the month of January, which is almost over now, he's shooting, I think, 38% from the field and 27% from beyond the arc. That's not where you're going to live. He's not going to be that way, but that's just that's a rough month for Dame. But he had a good shooting game on Saturday. He shot 50% from the field and 43% from beyond the arc, three of seven on Saturday for that win. And that ends the Joe Prunty run. And now we see what Doc can do. And Doc said, as a part of that sentence where he said, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, A part of that question or the lead into that question was, you're going to make your debut against the reigning world champions on the road. He said, yeah, not the easiest situation to step into. The Bucs are 32-14. and The Celtics did lose over the weekend, so the Bucs are three games back of the one. See, they are still tied for the second-best record in the NBA. But now things are going to crank up. They had the second-easiest schedule in the NBA up until now. And now things are going to change, and it is pretty relentless. From now all the way through mid-April when the season ends, there are certain lows where you play a Charlotte at home or you go to Charlotte or you take on – I'm looking through the schedule right now. God, there are not a lot of easy games. They're at Washington at one point. There are four or five games that you feel pretty comfortable they're going to win in blowout fashion. The rest of these, though, are not going to be easy, and that starts tonight. This is the beginning of a five-game trip. They are in Denver against Jokic and the defending champions tonight. Then they are in Portland on Wednesday. Portland having a terrible year. That should be a winnable game. That is Dame's return to Portland. That is why is it on? E- it's on ESPN. Yeah, it's on ESPN tomorrow or Wednesday at nine o'clock. Then you go to Dallas. That's tough with the Doncic Kyrie Irving combo. They're in Utah. Should be winnable, but we saw Utah put it on them at the end of the Griffin era. And then you wrap up this five-game trip with the red-hot Phoenix Suns, who seem to be clicking in now with Bradley Beal finally getting healthy and Durant's finding his shot. That's the end of this five-game trip, just a brutal five-game stretch where you see Denver, Dallas, and Phoenix. And then you finally get home, and who are you taking on after that Phoenix game? The number one team in the West, Minnesota and Anthony Edwards at home. You've got Denver at home. A week later, you've got Miami You're on the road in Minnesota. You're on the road in Philly. You've got another four-game West Coast swing in the beginning of March where you're at Golden State, at the Lakers, at the Clippers, and at the Kings. You come home after that with the Sixers at home and the Suns at home. Then you're right into Boston. That is just a murderer's row the rest of the way. But we're going to find out. We're going to find out. That was another part of what Doc talked about on Saturday. He said, it's tough, and I don't wouldn't want to put anybody in this situation where the expectations are this high, and you've got to learn and tweak it on the run, and then you have this brutal stretch of schedule. But he also sort of said, we're going to find out. We're going to find out what this team is made of. We're going to find out how locked in they are, and by the end of this, and once we get to April and however the seedings are going to break in the playoff picture in the Eastern Conference, we're going to find out in the next eight weeks, what this team is made of, and if they are truly a title contender. I kind of am buying into Doc. The more we talk about it and the more I think about how he has champions on this team where he didn't have that in Philly with Embiid, he didn't have that with Harden, he didn't have that in L.A. when you were talking about Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, he's got guys that know what it takes to win at the highest level, and he has not really had that since the Boston era, and even in the Boston season, the year that they won, Garnett, who has sort of a Giannis mentality where it's every day full throttle anytime he's on the floor 110%. When they were all in Boston the year they won the title, Paul Pierce had not won anything. Ray Allen had not won anything. And Kevin Garnett had not won anything. But those guys had the demeanor and the makeup more of what I see from some of these players on this Bucks team. You've also got the trade deadline looming. I believe it's next week, Thursday. Is it the Thursday heading into Super Bowl weekend? That feels like odd timing. I think it is, though, and we'll find out if the Bucs are going to be able to tweak their roster at all, maybe make a move for a wing defender or a good defensive guard. We know they're, they've are they been bandied about in all kinds of trade rumors. We talked about the DeJounte Murray trade rumor with Atlanta, and, of course, Alex Caruso is a guy Bucks fans, myself included, would love to see ability to knock down threes and a fierce on-ball defender that they're missing. Maybe P.J. Tucker gets bought out. I don't know. Not only are they going to be learning with a new coaching staff on the move, my guess is this roster is going to see a little bit of a shakeup next week by the trade deadline, trying to tighten things up or smooth out the rough edges of this roster. It starts for Doc tonight in Denver in 8 o'clock tip time. And, boy, what a way it would be to get off on the right foot if you could knock off the defending champs at their place in your first game as the new head coach. And we'll wrap up today on college basketball. I think the Badgers are going to be top 10 when the new rankings come out. Are they out? I never know what time... This is a weekly Monday segment where I, in real time, try to find out if the new rankings are out. They are not. They must come out at noon, maybe. Badgers are coming off of another nice win against Sparty at home on Friday. They got that win against Minnesota 2-0 week. They beat Sparty by 15 on Friday at the Kohl Center. They are now 8-1 and in the Big Ten, half game up on number two Purdue, 16-4 overall. Their week is going to take them... Against Purdue, this is coming up on Sunday, probably the biggest game of the year to date, wouldn't you say? I know they took on number one Arizona at the time on the road, and they had that Marquette matchup when Marquette was number three. They are at Nebraska on Thursday. This, if it wasn't a veteran team, and this is a veteran Badger team, Crowell, Wall, Hepburn, they've all been around for a while. It's still with college athletes, you still always worry about the notorious trap game. I would think a veteran team with a veteran coach, they're going to be able to keep them focused for Thursday. Nebraska is not a bad team. Badgers handed it to them pretty handily at the Cole Center back in early January, beat them by 16, 88 to 72. Badgers notoriously do not play well at Nebraska. It's kind of one of those Penn State-style arenas. Nebraska's not a bad team, and then you've got them on the road on Thursday before you have this showdown with number two Purdue at the Kohl Center on Sunday. It would be very easy to lose your attention and lose your focus and trip up at Nebraska. What is Nebraska's record? It'll be a 7.30 tip time at Nebraska on Thursday night. Yeah, they're 15 and six, and they are five and five in the top half of the conference. That is not going to be easy. You cannot be caught looking ahead to the Purdue matchup. That's coming up on Sunday, national TV, noon tip time. That's going to be one of the first times now that football season, we're into the final stage, final boss of football season. And with nothing going on over this coming weekend in between, that's going to be one of those first times where you get the feelings of spring and March madness, and the Badgers are a top 10 team, and Purdue's number two. They're going to play that. It's on CBS. You're going to start to get those March feelings on Sunday. I can't wait. Those little March butterflies. I can't wait to lose all my teasers and parlays in about a month and a half. That's this week as well, noon tip time on CBS on Sunday. Meanwhile, Marquette has kind of gotten it together as well. They are number 14. I would guess they're going to move up a couple spots in today's top 25 as well. They've won four in a row after that dip where they lost three of five, lost two in a row back in the early part of January. Now they've beaten Nova. They beat St. John's on the road, road, beat DePaul on the road last Wednesday, and handled Seton Hall, a Seton Hall team that was 6-3 and in conference. That was at Pfizer Forum on Saturday. They win by 18 75 57. Doc, by the way, addressed the crowd. Of course, his name is retired for Marquette number 31 for his time there in the early 80s. He did his introductory press conference, and then they had him in the middle of that game come out and do the we are Marquette, we are Marquette. That was kind of a neat component to that as well. But they got the win against Seton Hall. They're 15-5, 6-3 and, five, six and three in the Big East, and seem to be trending back in the right direction. Now they have that rematch with Nova this week. That is at Villanova on Tuesday, 6 o'clock tip time, and then they are at Georgetown on Saturday. So a road week for Marquette, 1 o'clock tip time on Saturday. To take on Georgetown. Both of those games on FS1. Tuesday at Villanova, 6 o'clock. Saturday at Georgetown, 1 o'clock. That'll do it for us here today. We will get back after it on Friday. We'll be loading up some college hoops conversations. We'll see how the first week with Doc goes. And I guess we'll kind of have that interim between now and the Super Bowl. Not a whole lot of football to go over if there's any kind of injury news or anything like that. Maybe the Packers hire a defensive coordinator this week. All eyes sort of on that. Not a lot of rumors out there right now. That could be something we're talking about on Friday, though, as well. Have a happy, safe work week. We'll chat with you Friday.